In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has signed your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Misha, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young man who eats royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away the choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus.
Hello everyone, let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, please would you speak to us as we open your word together now. And please help us to understand and help us to live this out in our lives, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I wonder, uh, have you ever thought who actually runs the country? Uh, some would say, well, it's the Queen, isn't it? Because she is our head of state. We have a constitutional monarchy. She signs off all the bills and parliaments and so on, so they can become law. It's obviously the Queen. Other people would say, well, she's more of a figurehead. And uh, no, surely it's actually Boris, isn't it? It's the Prime Minister. Uh, we've elected the Prime Minister. And uh, when, for instance, he was in hospital with COVID-19, things just seemed to kind of come to a bit of a, a, a slow down a bit in terms of decision making. So it's obviously the Prime Minister is the most important person and he rules the country. Others would say, well, no, it's not the Prime Minister because we're a democracy and uh, we elect the Prime Minister. So in a democracy, it's actually ruled by the people, isn't it? Literally. So it's us in the end who uh, run the country. Um, others would say, well, no, no, it's the, it's the special advisors, those guys behind the scenes, the Dominic Cummings and so on of this world, uh, who are really running the country. And, uh, uh, and there are many others as well, many ideas. Other people, for instance, would say, well, it's, it's the press who run the country. It's the journalists who run the country because they not only reflect, but they actually form public opinion. Well, four years ago, there were quite a lot of people were saying, well, um, actually, we don't really like the idea of Brussels running the country. Uh, and as a nation, we voted just for uh, leaving the European Union. So there are lots of different views about who runs the country and who we'd like to run the country. Well, actually, the answer is none of those. When we, when we come down to it and we think about it carefully, the answer is that none of, none of the above run the country because the answer is... The Lord runs the country. In fact, he runs the world, always has, always will do. And today we're starting on this new series in Daniel. And the big thing about Daniel is just simply this, who's the king? And the answer to that question is, the Lord is king. And as we look at chapter one today, uh, there are three times when we're told that God is at work, that God is in charge. So there are three key verses in Daniel chapter one. It's verse two, verse nine and verse 17. So verse two, for instance, says the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Uh, and the Lord is at work. It is, it is repeated three times there that in all these things that we see happening, the Lord is overruling all this. So who's in charge? Well, it's not Nebuchadnezzar, who was the leader of the world superpower. No, the Bible says confidently, actually, it is the Lord, despite what appearances are saying. So the Lord is king. That is the fundamental thing of uh, Daniel and Daniel chapter one. And that's our first point. The Lord is king. Look at uh, verses one and two here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the world superpower, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, or he showed his power against it. Could be another translation. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put them in the treasure house of his 
God with a small g. Now, uh, a little bit of history. In verse 1 there, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's 605 B.C. And Babylon is over on the east. It's pretty much where um, Iraq is now. It's where Bag- oh, it's near where Baghdad is in Iraq. And, uh, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar comes. It's in 2 Kings 24-25, the historical account of the, the taking of Jerusalem, the destruction of the land and so on. And then they take the, the guys, the, the people from Israel, the Jewish folks, off, uh, the, or at least the leaders, the key guys, those with real potential, uh, they take them off in chains to Babylon to indoctrinate them and to create a, a new people over there. The conquest is completed and lots of these best people are taken off. And it took a number of years. So although this talks about 605, it went off and the whole thing was not complete until 587 BC. And Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The whole thing was just uh, uh, wiped out. And the the walls of Jerusalem were knocked down. Uh, The people were deported. And it was a complete and total disaster uh, for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. It was a shattering blow. It was a shattering blow because they were God's people. They were God's covenant people. God had promised he would give them a land and now it's been ripped from them. He, he said that, uh, that Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem would be the place where they would meet with their God. And that's now just a pile of rubble in Jerusalem in 600 odd BC. It was a desperate, desperate time and a desperate, desperate blow. And now all their best people have been evicted and have been deported over to Babylon. And so there are lots of questions on people's minds. How could God allow this? Is God really there? Is God really Lord in all this, that all these things should be happening to us? In fact, a lot of those questions sound like the kinds of questions that people are answering now in this time of lockdown or the gradual release of lockdown and with this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Is God really in charge of the world? And if he is, how could a loving God do those kind of things that he is allowing to happen or causing to happen at the moment. Well, Daniel chapter 1 and the whole book of Daniel actually puts a very positive side to this and says, actually, God is in charge of the world. Of that, we can be confident. And Daniel is going to help us to see that the Lord is king. He's still king, even now. And he is and he will be king forever and for all time. And verses 1 and 2 are about power. They're about who's in charge. Ultimately, this is about who's in charge of the universe. So these are really big questions. And you see the two sides here. So you look in verse 2. The Lord, on the one side, delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of the king of Babylon. Uh, And then they go over and they take some of the articles from the temple to the god, small g, over in Babylonia. Now, Babylonia uh, is actually, uh, literally, it's Shinar, S-H-I-N-A-R. That's from Genesis chapter 11. That's where the people built the Tower of Babel, which is talking about people's arrogance, mankind's arrogance and rebellion against God and saying, no thanks God, we'll run the show, we'll be God, thank you very much. So it's, 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 so all the while here, it's just simply saying, look, there's a, there's something going on here. Who's God? Is it God with a big G? Or is it the gods with a little g that they had over there? There is the battle between the two. 
And here you can see that God is actually the one who's in charge. I've mentioned he's, uh, he's active. He's making these things happen. He's overseeing things. He's orchestrating things. You can see that in verse 2 and in verse 9 and in verse 17. God is at work. He's still in charge. Despite how it seems, he's actually and really still the Lord of the universe. He rules the world. And that should be an encouragement to us that uh, here we are in the midst of a global pandemic and it's the same God and we believe that he still rules the world today. And you shouldn't just look at history and look at the current circumstances. We need to look to the word of God to be told and to see and to understand that the Lord still rules the world today. So many people, though, don't like the idea of anyone other themselves being in charge, do they? But God is a sovereign God here. And he is a sovereign God over all people of all time. But, it's, uh, uh, but people say, for instance, you know, if, if God is in charge, what does it mean? Well, there's a Christian leader called uh, A.W. Pink, and he, he, he said this some while ago. He said this, to say that God is sovereign in charge is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purposes or resist his will. But actually, people still resist that. And uh, J.C. Ryle, one of our uh, uh, great leaders in uh, Christian history, said this, Of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. People don't like it. But actually, we need to accept it, that God is the sovereign. He is the one who is in charge. And this is how we should respond to it. Uh, A man called Colin Day has written this, uh, If such an almighty God does exist... I ought to respect and fear him. A sense of awe, overwhelming wonder, respect, fear and reverence is something I would do well to encourage in my own heart. God is not to be trifled with. So that is the first point in Daniel chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 here. Uh, Even in times of utter disaster, even when it really does look as if everything is going horribly pear-shaped, and how can God possibly be in charge here? The Lord is King. Now the second point is this, and this covers the great bulk of Daniel chapter 1 verses 3 to verse 20, and, and it is this, remember that when godless kings rule. So the Lord is king, remember that, when godless kings rule. So Daniel uh, and many others, the elite, uh, the leaders, those who had real potential, uh, they're all deported off to Babylon. And that's a long way. That's like walking, and that's what they did, from John O'Groats to Land's End. It's a very, very long way. And so far, uh, in verses 1 and 2, we've been looking at the historical stuff that's going on. Now, we go and it becomes deeply personal. Because we focus down on Daniel and three of his friends. And we know that these guys came from a privileged background. You look at verse 3, and it talks about Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. 
and Daniel and his friends uh, are included within that. And we also know that Daniel, for instance, was, uh, uh, well, they were all uh, guys here, verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. So clearly very able guys and of really significant potential. And they were selected for this indoctrination process. And uh, as we see at the end of verse 4, um, and they were, he was going to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So uh, this is going to be a process of three years, a bit like going to uni, except you couldn't come home. In fact, you never came home. And they were there, and they were going to be brainwashed, if you want to look at it in that kind of way. But they were going to be indoctrinated. They're going to be formed. They were going to become Babylonian. At least that was the aim of the whole process. Um, they have their names changed. So you look at verse 7. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. Now, their original names all ended with at least part of one of the names for God as he's revealed to God, his own people in the Old Testament. So Daniel ends in E-L-L which is one of the names for God. Same with all the other guys as well. And they were changed. They had their names changed. So they now end with parts of the names of the, Bab of the gods from Babylon. Uh, so every time their name was there, they, uh, was used, the new name was used, they'd be, uh, they'd be indoctrinated into the gods of the, uh, the Babylonian people. It was a processing and they want to make them thoroughly and completely Babylonian. And they fail. They fail abysmally. Because Daniel and his friends remember that the Lord is king. And that is still true even when godless kings rule. The Lord is king. There was one point where Daniel and his friends drew the line. And it's food and wine. Um, uh, he asks quite politely not to be given it in verse 8 uh, and the guy in charge them says well the king's going to have my head if he hears about this so Daniel suggests they have a trial and then in verse 14 he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days and at the end of that time verse 15 they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food now this is not an argument for teetotal veganism Okay, it is just uh, talking about God's goodness to these people. There is a point where they draw the line. The Lord is king, and they know that at some point they need to stand. Now, you may say, well, why didn't they make a stand when, when they wanted to change their names? Why was it about all this food stuff, the food and drink? Why was it there that they drew the line? Why, why did they say, you know, I'm, I'm OK with the name, but I, I'm not very keen on the, the fact I'm, I'm not, I really, I'm not, really don't want to eat this food or drink your wine. Why do they make that decision? Well, we don't know. It may be the kind of food. So, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 11, uh, there are rules there about the kind of food that God's people will eat. It Maybe it was that. Or maybe it was the use of the food. Perhaps that food had been sacrificed to Babylonian gods and they weren't prepared to eat food, uh, that kind of food. Or maybe it was the owner of the food. Maybe they were saying it's Nebuchadnezzar's food and we don't want to be eating that and drinking his wine. Thank you. We don't know. And frankly, it doesn't really matter so much what the particular issue was. The point is they made a stand. 
they decided that they were going to make a stand at some point. You notice how they did it. First thing they did was they decided ahead of time. So, so verse 8 here, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So he felt he would be defiled, and he decided ahead of time what he was going to do. That's a good principle to go on. If you're going to make a stand, don't just do it on the spur of the moment. Think it through, pray it through, talk it through with people, and then uh, make your stand. But do so carefully. And he also, as he did it politely, far too many, uh, seems to me, principled Christians can be really rather prickly about it and uh, quite unpleasant about it. But not Daniel. Uh, He was just simply saying and gently asking permission from the guy who was in charge of them. So he was gracious in the confrontation. That's the second thing. So he decided ahead of time and then he was gracious in the confrontation. So at the end of uh, verse 8 here, he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And then when the guy is thinking, oh no, if the king finds out, then Daniel worked out a good compromise. Well, give us a trial first and then we'll, uh, and then we'll see uh, what's going to happen. So uh, uh, so let's not be prickly about it. Let's decide ahead of time and then let's make a firm stand where we feel we need to do that. I've talked a little bit in recent uh, uh, months about Christians being chameleons, you know, just changing so that we become just like our society. Well, Daniel knew he wasn't. Because he knew that the Lord is king and he knew that he wanted to stand and be the Lord's man in a pagan country. And so he made the stand and he was not a chameleon at all. And we need to be uh, helping one another and encouraging one another to do the same, to make a stand because the Lord is king. And we need to remember that when godless kings rule. So what happened at the end? Well, after three years training, look at verse 18. Uh, they, uh, the, uh, they were sent at the, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service. The chief official presented them to, ne- to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. They had an interview, in other words, and they were accepted into the king's training. Uh, and they turn out to be, as it says in verse 20, ten times better, or literally it's ten hands better uh, I think the idea is, well, if you're doing something with one hand, these guys do it with two hands and they're ten hands better. So perhaps five times better, but doubled over because two hands. Um, does that make sense? It, don't worry if it doesn't, especially. And uh, But they were much better than the other guys. They were head and shoulders, we would say, better than the other guys. And uh, uh, And there are a couple of other things before rounding off. Why? Why would Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Why were they so committed? Why were they so brave? Well, actually, we don't know. But there's a very real possibility because they were nobility and they were uh, possibly had royal connections as well. Uh, We do know a little bit about their privileged background. And given their age, we reckon that they were uh, in the royal courts and uh, having connections when Josiah was king of Judah. And Josiah was a great reformer and was passionate 
uh, as one of God's people. And he was one of the really good kings, possibly one of the best kings of Judah. And they would have been there. They would have seen the way he lived his life and the things that he did to change stuff in his country. And uh, uh, he was a great king. He died tragically young. But it seems to me it's actually quite likely that they had been influenced by him as they were growing up. So uh, for us, never underestimate the significance of good children's work, of good youth work. Thank God that we've got great youth and children's work at, at BH and Holy Cross. And we want to we want to thank God for those who are involved in that and support and help them in their ministry. And never underestimate the significance of the influence that cr- good Christian people and good Christian leaders have on people in their younger years. The other thing is this, we'll be seeing Daniel's courage in great confrontations, life or death, where it really matters and where he could have lost his life very, very easily over these coming weeks. But it began where he drew the line over food and wine. Sorry, I didn't mean that to, uh, to, be, uh, to, to be writhing in that kind of way. But you see, it was the it was the. It was the uh, comparatively small thing where he drew the line, he made a stand. And it's just easier to stand for the big things if you've made a stand in a small thing first. So decide on some small thing where you will draw the line, where you need to make a stand, perhaps with your boss at work or maybe with your family or whatever it is. Uh, And then it is easier to make a stand on the bigger things later on as and when you need to. The Lord is king. Now, the Lord really is king. At all times, in all places, in all situations, the Lord is king. And we especially perhaps need to remember that when godless kings rule. Now, the third point is actually exactly the same as the first point. The Lord is king. And uh, and the reason I want to say that is just look right down to the end of the chapter in verse 21. And uh, Daniel remained there, that is, over in Babylon, until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, I love this, and this is really very significant, because, and, and it's beautiful. Uh, Daniel was exiled around about 605. He was then probably something, maybe a teenager, maybe a, perhaps he was 17 or 18, perhaps a, a slightly older teenager. And then the first year of King Cyrus is 539. That's 66 years later. So Daniel has spent his entire adult life over in Babylon, in the land where a godless king ruled. He'd been there a very long time. At the end of the book, he's probably in his 80s. And he's still serving the Lord in a godless place where godless kings rule thank god for daniel cyrus king of persia was the guy who allowed the jews to return to the promised land back to israel Uh, so daniel outlives the entire babylonian empire he outlasted two or three royal dynasties he outlives the exile And he kept on going with God. He spent the whole of his adult life as a political prisoner, effectively, working in the civil service of a pagan king. And at the end of his book, he's still there. 
still living. He's outlived them all and he's still serving his gods because the Lord is king. Now there may be formidable challenges but God's purposes will not be thwarted. The Lord is king. At this time of lockdown and as it's gradually being released we still remember the Lord is King. We may feel despair, we may feel discouragement when we see the news or the number of Covid deaths or how we'd long to be back meeting together and we can't do that just yet and it may be quite a little while yet. But Daniel 1 says the Lord is King. So let's stick with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the Lord is King. Thank you that you are King. Thank you that as we look to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus in his resurrection proves uh, that uh, God rules the universe. And we thank you, Lord, for the way Daniel lived this out day by day, year by year by year by year by decade by decade by decade. And we praise you for this godly man who stood for you, even in the most pagan of environments. We pray, Lord, you'd teach us more about him and rejoice in this wonderful truth that the Lord is King. Amen.